0: Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast and in these next few episodes I'm sharing my top five podcasts of 2023. Yesterday you had my conversation with Rory Sutherland at the Work Life Flywheel book launch in January and today you're going to hear my conversation with Julia Hobsbawm. Thanks again for listening this year and I'll see you back here in January 2024 for a brand new series. Hello and welcome back to the Future Wildlife Podcast. I'm Ollie Henderson and this is the final episode of this series. It's gone very quickly since that first episode in which Rory Sutherland and I chatted live at my book launch in January. And as always, we've had some fantastic guests along the way. And this week's is no different. My guest today is Julia Hobsbawm. She's the founder of the Nowhere Office and the author of a book of the same name, as well as five other books. She's also columnist for Bloomberg, writing the Working Assumptions column. And she's a speaker and consultant about the future of work and social health. Julia and I had a fascinating conversation. We discussed all things from hybrid work through to organisational culture, leadership and management. So I think you're going to enjoy the show. So, Julie, a pleasure to speak to you this morning. Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, I I like to start broad. So this is about as broad as it gets. Is the office era over?
1: Huh. Um, Short answer for a very broad question is no. Um, Mm. Contextual answer, has it changed forever? Yes. Um, My whole... um, belief and book and podcast and business is around saying that the office era did change forever, um, that the tipping point, to quote Malcolm Gladwell, was the pandemic, which is, of course, three years ago, exactly since global lockdown, but that the roots of that change were growing for um, at least 25 years before the pandemic, um, which makes this moment of office era having changed forever so solid. Um, and I think a bunch of us, I'd include you, Ollie, could see that change quite ahead of others, you know.
0: Mm. Yeah, and it's it's always useful to kind of view it in a historical context, isn't it? Because I think, obviously, Covid has often been said accelerated some of these changes, but like you said, things were in motion. And you talk in your book about the four stages of work, and I thought that might be a useful place to start, so that people listening can kind of understand what your take on it is and start drawing a connection between what's happened before and what you envisage happening in the future.
1: Sure. Well, a couple of things to say on that. I mean, first of all, I'm the daughter of a historian, so. In some respects, I've absolutely resisted putting anything in a historical context because, you know, such large imposter syndrome. But then, you know, you get to 58 and you think, sod that. But also, (laughs) perhaps as the daughter of a historian, I realise that the history is fantastically important, that you can't really understand um, the present or predict the future if you don't know what the past is, Um, we have a tendency in a social media age to really only look at five seconds ago, rather than fifty years ago or a hundred years ago. And so, mm. I I call my book that um, is still is still happily going strong um, the Nowhere Office, and that doesn't mean no office, but it means a moment in the history of professional work which began in twenty twenty, and I therefore wanted to place it. In context, and to say, well, if we think that it ushered in the era we're living in now with hybrid enabled by technology, enabled by a change, profound change in habit, um, triggered by uh, all sorts of interesting demographic changes, ge- uh, generational changes which mean this no going back moment, what happened before? And is what happened before, does it have any relation to now or is it just interesting history? And I felt very, very strongly that it it did bear huge resemblance. Now, now the book's been published, I'm sort of going back 100 years, but for the sake of the book, I wanted to start more recently than that and start at the end of the Second World War because... That was the last time the world was literally united. And it was united by the notion of a reset after a collective trauma. So I started to look at what was really happening in 1945. And I Mm. thought that you could argue that that was the era of optimism, of simplicity and optimism, where office life, professional life, was all about rebuilding you know, countries, nations, commerce, the skyscraper, the mad men, you know, it was a sexist, racist, limited time, but it was also a time when, you know, people didn't agonise as much and there wasn't as much choice um, and the world grew and wanted to grow back. And I reckon that happened until about 1977. And of course, what was marked then I'll, I'll be as brief as I can, by the way, is that there weren't really any computers in the office. You went into the yeah. office for the typewriters, for the filing cabinets, for the presenteeism, and whatever kit you needed was in the office. There absolutely was no work from home. You might have been a traveling salesperson, but you, if you worked in a professional setting, you worked in an office. The next period of time I call, um, the mezzanine years, meaning the, the middle years, the intermediate years, and they began in 1977 and ran up until 2006 because those were the years when the internet hadn't arrived, but the computer had, and also a whole load of routes that, as I say, we're now seeing of unrest, of of demanding, quite rightly, equality and flexibility and all the stuff that some people are treating as new, but Mm. they're not new. Um, so they were uncomfortable years, but important years. But the office still reigned supreme because you still had to be present. There was a norm. You know, women were regarded as, you know, fringe fringe people in the workplace in terms of our demands, our needs, um, et cetera. Then you had the internet. 2007 is in a way the period that directly precedes literally and um, politically this moment of the nowhere office and I do think it's important to say this moment is kind of political it's not without its its issues around fairness and change and I call that phase the co-working years because it was marked by Mobility the best-selling book in 2007 was a book called The Four Hour Work Week that spent seven years on the best selling list by um, uh, Tim Ferriss, who's now become an internet star. Um, we work started in 2010, and it was the era in which the possibility of not working in a fixed place using mobile technology, where your desk, if you like, was in the cloud, began, and that's why I think that the nowhere office. Was this triggering of what 's been called variously the great resignation, what I call the great reevaluation, so i 'll stop there, but that 's the mm. context
0: yeah and and actually it 's really interesting so I, I I wrote down a word which you said earlier in that piece, particularly the post war period, which is optimism, and it 's probably difficult to argue that during those i don 't know how long it was it seemed like Forever, but it was maybe 18 months of lockdowns. It's difficult to think that that was a particularly optimistic period for many people. But maybe on the other side of that, you'd have thought we'd have come out with a new lease of life. But actually, the great resignation is even the connotation of that is a negative one. The four-hour work week, that that is an optimistic outlook on the world, isn't it? The whole point people really grasped onto that was because they're like, okay, my life could be different. I could feasibly live anywhere in the world and still be able to earn money. And actually living somewhere cheaper allows me to do less work and do more things I enjoy. That's sort of inherently an optimistic thing. I wonder whether you feel like people are, and this is obviously a mass generalization, but I wonder whether you feel like people right now are optimistic about these changes or whether it's all couched in this negative which like, you know, we should be missing what we had before. This is to the detriment of young people because they won't have the office experience. How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, look, the reality is the the dominant word at the moment is hybrid. And I think the issue is hybrid. I think it spans Mm. the optimist and the pessimist in all of us. You know, I mean, there is, first of all, um, a number of issues have been unleashed around inequality. Greater inequality, um, you know, how what I call hybrid haves and have nots. Um, that's not pessimism, that's a reality check that um, it's in some ways dividing people, even in households. Some people, you know, who go out and they're a teacher or they're a frontline worker, and then their partner or mm. their flatmate is staying at home, and that causes resentment. Different di- reasons to not be cheerful include the very well documented um, isolation. Um, The lack of soft skills and learning on the job that particularly young people, what I call the learners as a generational cohort, miss. And yet, and but, um, I think it is a very optimistic time because I think that, and I've written about this a lot in previous books, um, such as a book called Fully Connected and a book called The Simplicity Principle that preceded the nowhere office, work was not working. If you look at mm-hmm. the illness, the stress, the low productivity, the rise of the question of mental health at work are all markers of dysfunction. And so the the the, the no time to think, no time to reflect uh, era of the optimism years, the mezzanine years, the co-working years, if you like, came to a hard stop with the Nowhere Office. And so even though lots of people say to me, but Julia, it's a negative, the nowhere office. It's also an Mm -hmm. anagram of here and now. It's also a carpe diem moment, which is, this is where we are. Are we going forward into optimism or backwards into pessimism? And that's the way I would frame it. And it's definitely complicated. Um, Some managers and leaders are are trying to frame this as get back to the office. But they're increasingly realizing that things have changed. I mean, you speak to a recruiter, you speak to an HR manager, you speak to anybody, especially around certain industries like tech, you can forget full-time presenteeism. And you can yeah. compel people, but they're not going to do their best work, which is why you got the, the sort of quiet quitting which is also um, interpreted as as, as negative, but it could also be positive, which is people will do their best work when they are motivated and well-treated and well-paid and well-respected. You know, optimism and positivity come out of fairness. And I'm optimistic that fairness is back on the agenda.
0: I think you're completely right as well. I think there's a lot of the language which does determine how people think about it. And it works two ways. It reflects how people think, but it also can influence the way you're approaching. So I've got a bit of an issue with work-life balance as a phrase, because people tend to use it as a negative, as in I don't have any work-life balance. And my contention in my book is that work-life balance is actually impossible to achieve this perfect equilibrium and in a, in a sense it has in many ways has had negative consequences and particularly I think you've seen it in issues with burnout as people have struggled to balance perfectly their work and their personal life if they become closer during during the pandemic but I wonder and this isn't a bad thing whether I'm framing this as a positive just to take your lead I wonder whether if the compromise that comes with flexible work for example is an acceptance that work and life have to become more integrated
1: I agree completely actually and I think integration is a very very good word as is iteration I mean I think Mm -hmm. that um, we're understanding so much more in the workplace about um, emotional literacy and behavioral psychology and the 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 the, the realities of motivation and you know uh, the phrase psychological safety coined by the Harvard professor, Amy Edmondson, these things really do matter. Um, I think, I think to your point about work life balance, becoming a stick to beat oneself with is very, very interesting. Um, Emma Gannon, who's a writer who I like a lot um, is just written a new book really about burnout. And I've been reflecting on this funny enough today, thinking about time Because on my Instagram feed, I'm bombarded with two things that the algorithms seem to think I want. One of them is um, time-saving protein shake drinks. um, And the other is sort of intermittent fasting diets. But in amongst that is is also actually now time-saving apps, AI assistant apps. And the truth is, I think, you know, the Microsoft Copilot, which has just been launched, is going to be very interesting. But I want to push back on this idea that time must be saved, because it's a little bit like what you're talking about, that work and life must be balanced. Mm. It's not really that realistic. What I mean by that is you can't bank time like you can save pennies. You know, if you actually put 50p in a jar then after 50 weeks you're going to have more than if you didn't right time doesn't work like that there's 168 hours in the day, in in a week you know the absolute maximum anybody can reasonably be awake for and functioning for on average is you know at most 15 hours a day and of that they're going to really waste as in not spend productively you know going to the loo or getting dressed or whatever so I think the point about it is that it's not that you have to save time as respect it. Do you see what I mean? Mm. I think we've got to re re-evaluate the way we look at time, the way we look at our lives, the way we look at our work and be keep it real rather than aim for perfection. I think we want to eradicate perfectionism and go for realism. That doesn't directly answer your question, but that's my take yeah. on your question. And by the way, a, a, an earlier book of mine was called The Seesaw, 100 Ideas for Work-Life Balance that was published in 2009 that's still av- available knocking around online somewhere. So, I, mm. I mean, I, I, I like you, have been interested in that phrase and I find it unsatisfactory like you.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I sp- that's the thing. I, I, I like to try to focus on how work and life can complement one another. My observation, having spent a lot of time reflecting on it over the past few years, frankly, having not had the time, ironically, to focus on it before then, is that Typically, when I'm happier at home, I am happier in my work and probably doing better work. And when my work is going well, I'm happier at home. And that's not to say you can always be in control of these things. It's impossible. It's just to see that there's a relationship between the two. And I think it's just unrealistic, as you suggested, to say that the two cannot be connected, which is why, although I absolutely advocate you know getting boundaries particularly for those companies and bosses who don't respect the fact that people have lives going on and try to impinge upon every moment of their day I definitely think there has to be boundaries but I do think just generally that the two can work well together
1: the elephant in the room in all of this and I've devoted a chapter to it in the book is um is is management and leadership so there's the rise of what you and I call um well, what I call, but you and I are talking about the solopreneur, okay? Mm -hmm. People making their own luck. And the data shows that really the world of – of professional work is really echoing the world of manual work of the gig economy, which is, you know, the freelancer era is rising. So the idea that, you know, you get a job for life and you get tenure that is going to be more and more rarefied. That's going to be like the seven star hotel or the five star hotel. Most of us Mm. are going to be gig workers, albeit paid more than people lower, lower down the, um, in the job scale, which is of course topsy turvy because the people at the, cleaning our streets and working on the on the front line should probably be paid a lot more but you get my point the elephant in the room is that a large number of people are still managed and led and you know are what i would call sandwiched between marzipan layers of management and they're the ones that we need to worry about because they're the ones that don't have agency which we know statistically Perhaps it makes people feel empowered and therefore adds to their feeling of um, productivity and happiness if you can if you can put it like that so so the issue for me is that i 'm on a bit of a crusade to get the way we talk about management the way management is deified as leadership with a capital l reframed so i 'm interested in the whole range um ollie of i 'm interested in the personal the political. Mm. the 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 physical where we locate ourselves the technological the generational but in the end the biggest single change that needs to happen for most people who still have to go into work even on a hybrid basis and do work for someone who's paying their wage how well is that being done because it's It is so demoralizing if you're working to a timeline that doesn't work back to my obsession with time or, you know, a Mm. timeline or a deadline or a project with, you know, someone you think not well of. Do you see what I mean? So we've got a lot of work that needs to be done around reframing work.
0: Mm. Yeah, and on that point, and I wonder if you recognize this in your research, and I think we probably touched on a couple of the points here but it'd be good to expand upon it so as part of the research for my book I discovered a couple of fascinating I mean slightly worrying trends as well on how people feel about their careers and the headlines were around nine in ten people feel like they're not fulfilling their potential and you know definition of that varies but that was the kind of headline and more than three quarters of people I surveyed and this was about four thousand plus people wanted to make big changes in their work lives so I'm interested whether you see some of the things we discussed contributing significantly to those underlying issues or whether there are other things as well which you believe are causing such discontent.
1: Well, you're totally right. All the data I've seen and all the data that people said was temporary has turned out to be permanent, which is people's attitudes have shifted. I mean, if you just Mm. take the period of the pandemic, um, it takes around about 66 days to change a habit. Well, we've had about 1,000 days so you know, habits have changed, um, norms yeah. have, have have shifted. Um, I think that my absolute belief is that underlying the reasons for the nowhere office, where hybrid is here, even though it's massively inconvenient for a lot of bosses, it's played absolute havoc with office space. It's harder to manage, etc. And yet, employees want it. My absolute contention, as I say, is that work has been badly managed, um, unfair and has felt like a sort of um, it has felt as confining and um, difficult for the white collar worker as the blue collar worker, which is only emerged when, as you've rightly said, there was time to reflect. But equally, there are other trends. One of the trends, for instance, is sustainability that, you know, business travel is going to be limited. You know, you cannot shoot around the world in quite the same way. Organisational behaviour has got to change. Buildings have got to be remodelled to be sustainable, to have net zero targets met. That's one shift. Um, Gen Z feel very differently about work. They, on the one hand, want the good coffee and the and the camaraderie and the training, but they also want liberty. They don't want to be tied down. They don't care as much about their career as millennials did. They don't want to make their mark in the same way. They want to make it on their terms. Um, There's all sorts of, 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 of shifts that are happening as well. But I believe fundamentally, I don't know if you agree with this, but I believe work is good and people like to work and need to work and should work. I'm absolutely not in the camp that says Oh this is a moment for universal basic income and we all need to poodle about and have a life that doesn't involve work. That's not my bag. I can see the argument for it. I don't agree with mm. it. I'm I'm agreeing with um the so, social thinker Hannah Arendt um who 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 wrote in a wonderful book called The Human Condition published in the 50s about you know vita activa. You know the life of contemplation is fine. But also we need to contribute to society. We need to be part mm. of something. And you see that in the growth of community action. The yeah. question of what yeah. you're paid and how you live in amongst that is absolutely live. And I, I think, Ollie, you and I have got to come up with a better phrase. I mean, work, life, flywheel is a pretty good one. That's your book. Um, but there is something going on about reframing this integrated moment. Mm. Um, yeah, but what I definitely don't want to do is take work out of the out of the equation.
0: And it's interesting because I know you explore purpose in in the book, and clearly, purpose it's a loaded phrase for some people. But I just bring it down to its core element: having purpose in life and in work is just really important. And if you look at Gen Z, it's not necessarily that they don't have ambitions to. Um, have a fulfilling career they require purpose to be a part of it so you know again a lot of the survey data says they make decisions based on whether their purpose their beliefs align with the companies that are employing them and of course that is a really new phenomenon I mean there might have been that might have been a part of the decision people were making before but pretty small behind things like salary and progression and things like this. So it's just fundamentally different. And, you know, we're both optimists, it seems. And I feel like that's an opportunity for us to rethink work as well, because why shouldn't we be able to give people purpose within what they're doing every day? And it doesn't have to be changing the world. It can be, you know, giving them a sense that they're making a difference to people's lives around them, the people they're working with every day, which I suppose comes back to that point you made about, management and leadership. Could you just expand upon what you said, touching on the things which weren't necessarily considered the role of a manager before? How do you envisage that happening and how could that contribute to improving things in the way we're discussing?
1: Well, I mean, I love this conversation because I really feel there's a, a group of us that are very actively engaged in the sort of philosophy and morality and practicality, which is a sort of, you know, really, again, mm. makes me optimistic that we're having these conversations now in a way that, you know, before the pandemic, people would be like, yes, whatever, you know, what's the six-point plan? What's the TED Talk, you know? Yeah. Whereas now it's much more um, sort of I- 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 emotional in a way. I just want to say a little bit about Gen Z and Purpose my Mm. the the chapter in my book specifically refers to purpose and productivity you know and a lot is said about productivity um which is a, a rather dryly measured elusive thing um but actually i think that it's pretty straightforward which is people are productive when they're engaged and they're engaged when they're when they have purpose. Now, purpose yeah. has become a loaded word, it's become associated with ESG, environmental, social and governance, which in itself is being bashed about all over the place, you know, in the financial world. So it's a new phrase, purpose, and therefore it's a it's very vulnerable to being immediately debunked. But I think that we know what we're talking about. It almost doesn't matter mm. what it's called. I think, I think yeah. we're learning, aren't we, that getting hung up on phrases is not as important as the meaning. Mm. People want meaning because their lives have meaning and because the smartphone era, the technology era, whether we like it or not, has connected every human being and every worker being with those divided selves as a single being. And we knew it before, but we used to have uniforms to act as a barrier. We used to have demarcated nine to five days that acted as a barrier. We no longer have the old traditions of barriers and therefore we have to make our own new barriers. And one of the barriers is to say, if it doesn't have meaning, if I don't feel it's worth my time because I'm working for an idiot or I'm working for a company that's doing bad stuff, People are just not able anymore to fake it, is what I think. And that brings us back to leadership, which is there are a lot of problems with the systems of organisations. And again, I fall out with people that say, yes, Julia, but, you know, it's capitalism. Capitalism's got to go. And I think, I don't know, not so much give me an alternative i don't i mean of course we can have an enormous philosophical conversation about it but the truth is growth and turnover and creating profits to plow into not just shareholders but road sweeping is probably a good thing you know we can have another conversation about it so the problem is not the idea of it necessarily it's the execution of it and the execution okay. of it means that you get tremendously unwieldy systems which is why management speak has been full of the aspirational word agile but agile is about you know as 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 lacking in evidence as, as as you can get you know it's a sort of fantasy so that's why I come back to the idea of management and structure and if I could wave a magic wand the next phase I feel like hybrid is here we've got it we're making it work the office market is pivoting. We're seeing all sorts of, you know, frankly, pretty exciting innovations into mixed use space in city centres, possibly mm. even residential creche together with, with offices, the burgeoning of, of possibility in suburbs as well as cities. All of that is like changing. What isn't really changing yet and needs to change is the C-suite, is the management structure like who's running the show who's giving the orders what does success look like what is their training like what is their skill set like that's what's interesting me now do you agree by the way you're nodding but that might mean nodding as in I don't know about that no
0: well no and I do agree I think I think what's really interesting is that I think a lot of the debate about whether the office or remote are best, for example, which we, you know, it drags on and we've been discussing it, even though hybrid is kind of becoming the default. But there are still certain camps, often with vested interests, who claim that returning to the office is best. For example, they might claim that, and I think you wrote about this in the book, that the careers of younger generations will be stunted because they're working from home and they don't even realise what they're missing. They don't even realise it. These poor young people, they don't even realise what they're missing, which is, of course, ridiculous. But um, I think most of the debate is actually shrouds the main issue, which is that, It's company culture issue and the fact that leadership and managers don't know how to lead in this new environment. Now, the problem is it assumes that they did know beforehand.
1: And also, I think it's important that we don't overinflate corporate culture versus management, because the truth is a lot of organizations did a very good job of creating brand and creating Mm. an ethos of culture. You know, and you've got your Friday night drinks and you've got your karaoke and you've got your move along and, and, and brand was very big. That yeah. often masked, your word masked, bad management, mm. which is you yeah. get swept up in a narrative. You know, people people are very invested in mm. narrative. It's a bit like in relationships, you know, people get invested in the idea that you're lo- in love. And then mm. what happens when you stop feeling in love and how do you express that? You know, how do you, yeah. how do you challenge relationships that 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 need to be changed or improved, you know? I mean, I'm interested, actually, apropos that in the idea that hybrid is now being um, created in quite a rigid way in some organisations that rather than being flexible and allowed to breathe, which is maybe we need in this organisation in this Mm. set of relationships with our workers and our customers and our deadlines and our products to work immersively for five weeks where everybody's in for five weeks or we need our new people in for nine months or nine weeks like they incubated in their mother's tummies for nine months instead of personalizing and customizing
0: yes there's a sort of
1: one size fits all rigidity Mm. And if yep. you look at the, uh, the analogy of a relationship, which I've just used, it's a little bit like date night, which I don't know about you, but as a long standing <laughs> married woman, my God, that phrase bugs me because <laughs> yes, but it's a bit like a diet, isn't it? It's mm. a bit not like a lifestyle. I mean, as a principle, the idea that you make quality time for each other is fine, but gosh, you're in trouble if you only make time between the hours of six and 10 on a Wednesday because that's date night. And I think the same is true with hybrid and it leads back, I'll draw breath at this point, but it leads back to Mm -hmm. management. Who's guiding these ideas? People have got to think, Ollie. People have got to think differently and act differently and not have all the answers. And the thing I say in my book is, the lead, the leader has got to become the listener.
0: I think one of the positives of COVID and the changes which resulted from it are it kind of shone a light on the fact that culture had in many people's eyes become this superficial thing. And I think we've had to get rid of a lot of that stuff, you know, the, the perks of the office, the... Um, you know you're lucky if you get some flexibility the going down the pub on a Friday night these aren't the way I see culture culture for me has always been about this is the sort of environment where you feel like you're doing something meaningful and you're working with people you respect and that you're you know, working together and that you're growing on that point about rigidity about hybrid yeah you're right the the difficulty is, I'm always really conscious here, that organizations, particularly large organizations, are very complex beasts. And there are a lot of moving parts. And however much technology is facilitating it, I think there are logistical issues, which and it's, it's, people are approaching this maybe one step at a time. They say, well, look, we've gone from fully office-based. But now we're doing hybrid. We'll do a 3-2 model, whichever way around, three days in, two days out, or whatever. And they see that's the best. Then there's, of course, the issue some people have got that in different territories or in different job functions they want to be fair and therefore they want to offer the same thing to others now i'm much more i am much more flexible in nature i tend to take the approach that Of course, in different job functions, people are going to require a different mix. To say that there's a blanket policy that everybody should have the same number of days in the office and not take into account the complexities of their individual roles is actually madness. But I suppose it feels like baby steps in some organizations. And I think all of this reflects that there's just a lack of imagination, I think, in, in a lot of leadership and a fear of getting it wrong. I think there's a too much of a fear culture where people say, you know, putting my head on the parapet and putting myself out there and suggesting new and novel ideas risks me getting something wrong. And that does come back to these organizations who do tend to get it best over the medium to long term are those that do innovate, and innovate means failing. And even though again that's become a bit of a cliche, not enough companies are willing to fail, and not enough individual leaders and managers are willing to fail. And I think that's where I see those that are being experimental and in inviting the opinions of the people in the organization at different levels and in different places will ultimately be those that win out and get the best people to stay and get the best talent and all that stuff that contributes to making a, big, a good company. So I think we're on the same page on that one.
1: I think we're completely on the same page. In fact, I've got a little bit of word envy, Ollie, where you keep saying things. that I think, gosh, I think that completely. Um, sorry, that's my <laughs> outlook pinging. It's very interesting. I'm doing this interview from my nowhere office my little corner of my house and of course one of the things that um uh, perhaps we can sort of wind up on is 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 the new kind of office norms you know like working from home you know I've unplugged the phone I'm always forgetting to plug the phone back in and you know the Amazon driver that arrives and you 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 know shush and all that sort (laughs) of stuff I mean we are in a new world in which the the logistical behaviors are changing too. I think we've gone very deep, but perhaps we can just also end on a kind of optimistic reality check on the fact that we're learning new things all the time. We're relearning how to behave. We're relearning. And actually, I think we're getting a greater connection and a greater intimacy. For years, I wrote about networks and networking and made radio programs about it when people were sort of like, well, who needs anything else other than LinkedIn? Well, we really value intimacy now. We value digital intimacy, funnily enough, on LinkedIn, which is thriving, on WhatsApp groups, which are thriving, but we also love meeting face-to-face. And I find that Mm. that that juxtaposition of who we are in our work lives and our human selves is what is defining this moment and the nowhere office is always designed as an intermediate phase you know a liminal phase before we get to the somewhere and the somewhere I hope is is a better place for those of us working and living and trying to make sense of what is you know let's face it a pretty scary world
0: well put. I will point people in the direction of the Nowhere office in the show notes. It's been a pleasure to speak. Lovely to properly meet you today. So thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Ollie. And I say properly meeting, but we're meeting telephonically. We'll have to meet IRL. Yes.
0: Exactly. Exactly. We will do. Thanks, Julia. Thank you.